Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 24th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present Truthvids 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White, Part 36 of this series of presentations. Here we shall continue in our endeavor to show that the Apostle John had described the Antichrist as men who were not of his own people, but who were among his people and who had denied Christ. Then, at the end of chapter 2, where he described these men to his readers as them that seduce you at the end of chapter 2 in this first epistle, it becomes evident that he was describing men who had been surreptitiously infiltrating the body of the people of God and corrupting it with false teachings. Doing this, it is further evident that he was essentially describing the same men that the apostles Jude, Peter, and Paul had also warned Christians about in their own epistles men who were infiltrators and corruptors of the body of Christ. Hello, Truthfits. Thanks for joining us once again. Yeah, hey, Bill. Thanks for having me again. Um, So, yeah, here we're continuing with um, John and the Antichrist message, and he goes a little bit deeper, but perhaps also um, deeper than the other um, apostles uh, in explaining that they're also behind the complete corruption of society, as he as we'll get to a bit later, that they are behind the sin. They create the sin uh, in society, that they uh, are responsible for the wars, for the corruption of our society, and that they've, they've even formed the protocols of, of Satan, right, where they've tried to optimize and maximize the efficiency of this corruption of our society and to completely eliminate Christianity and bring our society down to to Sodom and Gomorrah, that they are behind it all. And many people throughout history, you know, even if they weren't great Christian people, they've realized this, that they've observed their behavior and, and maybe they didn't have all the knowledge and connect all the dots and realize why, but they've observed it and seen that they are indeed behind everything and that they are completely anti-Christian, and everything John said has come to fruition, right? Right, Bill? Well, well right. And, and even though I, I didn't write it into the notes here, perhaps I will when, when I embark on my commentary on this epistle of John in the very near future. The timing of this it is, um, is sort of convenient for me because I, I'm about to, finish my commentary on the Wisdom of Solomon, and the next commentary I have planned is on this very epistle. So I will elaborate on a lot of the things that I've said in our last presentation and today when I do that commentary, and and perhaps fill out my arguments from even more citations in Scripture. But John, I believe, as he, I fully believe, I'm fully persuaded, as he writes this epistle, is echoing all of the lessons which he had learned, not only when he 
had the experiences which he had recorded in his gospel, but also when he had the visions which he had recorded in the Revelation, which is the revelation of Yahshua Christ or Jesus Christ given to John in those visions. He is expressing what he learned as we see it in the Revelation and in his gospel, he's expressing that here and in very simple terms. And in that, there's a very important distinction which we're going to discuss here in the first epistle of John, which is totally lost in all of the translations. Because there is a difference between those who merely sin and those who are the authors of sin. That there's a difference between that the um, the people who commit sodomy or fornication and those who have introduced the concepts of sodomy and fornication into the world and normalized that behavior and encourage people to partake in those sins. So, so John makes that distinction, but it's lost to the translators. They, they, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why. If they have only, if they had only translated the the different terms that John used describing sin, describing the action of sin, if they translated them more literally instead of glossing them over, perhaps more people would realize that there's a distinction. So we'll talk we'll talk about that a little later. But while Peter and Jude had used similar terms to describe these men who are infiltrators into the assemblies of Christ and who subverted, while Peter and Jude used similar terms to describe them, although they use those terms in their own words. Even though Peter and Jude use these similar terms, they, they had both used them in, in ways different enough that you could tell that they weren't copying from one another, that they just had the same language and, and probably, I, I can only conjecture, they had probably discussed these things many times as they were together in, in their ministry. So, while they use similar terms, Paul and John had employed quite different terms to describe the same men. However, in each of their various descriptions, when we correlate them, we see that they are all speaking of the same entities, of these men who were long ago condemned. Men who long ago began infiltrating the body of Christ in their attempts to corrupt it, even long ago from their own time, and who would continue to infiltrate and corrupt it from their time, from the first century, and into the future. So they're warning us about these men who have always been corrupt, who have always infiltrated into the body of Christ, which the Old Testament Israelites are the body of Christ before the incarnation of Christ. These men are also described by each apostle as having been innately corrupted themselves, as they were bastards, 
and therefore corruption is a part of their intrinsic character for which they have no choice but to produce its fruits because the tree is known by its fruit. And when you see a race of individuals who are forever spreading corruption, infiltrating other nations, other societies, and and promoting uh, things like the universal brotherhood of man, the acceptance of homosexuality, the benefits of abortion and, and pharmaceuticals and things like that, all things which are forbidden in the commandments of Christ, in the laws of God, then you can identify that tree by its fruits. It should be so plain. It's plain as day. Once you understand the scripture, what the apostles are, are, are describing, and just a little bit of history. For that same reason, these men not having the Spirit of God, they can never be redeemed. And Christianity was never offered to them as an option. They were always seen as wolves among the sheep, as in infiltrators, intruders. So just as it was in Jude, Peter, and Paul, which we've already explained that this phenomenon in all three of, of, of the epistles of, of all three of those apostles, it was also stated here in John, as we saw in our last presentation, that these men are described as a different race of people, men who could not have been of Israel because they were born into corruption and destruction, as Peter had said. And that was evident here in John, where we would translate verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2 to read in, in our own translation, little children, in the last hour, it, I'm sorry, little children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, and Antichrist there is singular, even now, many Antichrists have been born, and that's what John is saying, just as Peter used the same word, which when used of people means to be born, to describe these spots in our Feast of Charity as being born into corruption and destruction. John says that even now, meaning in his own time, many antichrists have been born from which we know that it is the last hour. So with that, we will continue our description of this racial message in the Apostle John and, and the nature of the antichrist according to that message. I don't know if you have anything and, um, to add. If, if anything, they've got more efficient at corrupting our societies, right? They've got better and better at it, and more crafty and more cunning. Yes, absolutely. That They've actually convinced us that they are the people of God, that they are the chosen ones, and, and have forced Christians or, or embarrassed Christians from early times 
into accepting them on that basis, even though they continue to deny Christ and, and Christians throughout history for at least the last 1,200 years had been deceived by that. It took Christianity 300 years, roughly, to spread throughout the Roman Empire to the point where Rome really had no choice but to accept it. But the version of Christianity which Rome accepted was not the Christianity of Paul of Tarsus and the other apostles. Instead, the version of Christianity which Rome accepted was a universalist sort of Christianity, which believed that all men could be saved regardless of their origin, which is contrary to Scripture. And that was a version of Christianity which was very amenable to the Roman Empire, which wanted to rule over all people and have all people as equal citizens and ostensibly practicing the same religion, even though Judaism was tolerated. So that perverted version of Christianity, which is replacement theology, from the second century, had recognized the Jews, who are not Israelites, according to the flesh, as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 9, that they were not all Israelites, that many of them were Edomites, but that Christianity blindly accepted Jews as being the people of God, when the apostles taught just the opposite. So, that's been exploited, not immediately, but ever since perhaps the ninth century, at least, and perhaps a little longer in, in some places. Over the 300 years, when Rome, that, that Rome became Christian, when Rome finally did accept Christianity, by the time of Theodosius I, who was one of the successors of Constantine the Great, Theodosius I, Theodosius II, in the 5th and 6th centuries, I believe, it might have been the 4th, but I think Theodosius I is from the 5th century, what happened was Christians realized that even though Jews were God's chosen people, that they were cursed because they rejected Christ. They did get that part right, at least. So originally, in the 5th and 6th centuries, Jews were driven out of the empire. They were driven out of the Byzantine Empire because they weren't allowed to function as Jews function. They weren't allowed to loan money at usury because usury was banned originally when the state became Christian. So they weren't allowed to loan money at usury. They weren't allowed to own Christian slaves. They weren't allowed to hold public office. And a lot of other privileges and rights of citizens, Jews lost. And most of them, in most of Europe, they never regained until the emancipation in the time of Napoleon. 
However, from the Middle Ages, converso Jews, because different popes had argued over whether or not Jews should be converted to Christianity. Some had understood that by that time, they were no longer convertible and they should be kept outside of Christianity. So some popes accepted the conversions of Jews and some popes rejected it. Those popes that accepted it had also taken Jewish rabbis that converted and made bishops out of them for their perceived learning. When that began to happen, the Roman Catholic Church began to be undermined because those Jews became very prominent um, commentators on scripture, writing commentaries on scripture. Even Martin Luther was totally infected with the thoughts of converso Jewish commentators who he quoted in his attacks on the Jews. He was quoting from converso Jews. So once the Jews had convinced Christians that even though Christians had formerly believed they were cursed, that they were really God's chosen people, and that perhaps in the last days they would finally be converted and all these false doctrines of a future Antichrist and tribulation of the Jews had, had been formulated by Jews who converted to Christianity, and very often their conversion was not authentic, they were infiltrating, they were doing just what Peter and Jude had warned. They were infiltrating the body of Christ and polluting it and subverting it with false doctrines. So they did exactly what Peter and Jude had warned, and John here also, and because the church rested on its own traditions rather than on the words of the apostles, the churches all became corrupted. And the Jews had been able to subvert the entire Christian society until this very day, in spite of these warnings of the apostles. Now, that, that's a lot of history to try to squeeze into a short summary, but I hope at least it makes some kind of sense, some semblance of sense. Yeah, and you can just see today how they um, have gradually made churches accept homosexuality, right, by just wearing them down over decades, you know, with arguments and debates that they've gradually accepted. And they did the same thing. Uh, you know, over a thousand years ago with all, all those initial, uh, perhaps softer uh, corruptions, what, what you just said, by gradually becoming the, the, the writers of and uh, writing, you know, explanations of the Bible, right? Right. There's all sorts of um, false doctrines that churches maintain today that the apostles taught the contrary. What One of them is this mantra that, that we hear in, in some churches here in America of hate the sin, love the sinner. And through that mantra, hate the sin, love the sinner, Christians are compelled to accept sodomites and race mixers into their churches. So they have spots in their feast of charity. And they do. They accept them based on that. So the next thing that happens is that the United States government forces them to accept homosexual marriage, and you have church pastors all over the country 
marrying sodomites to one another, which is, isn't even marriage. It can't be a marriage. <clears throat> but now the state defines what a marriage is rather than God, and they've accepted the state definition. So, this hate the sin, love the sinner is absolutely contrary to words of the apostles, such as 2 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where, where Paul's discussing someone who committed fornication by having sexual relations with his father's wife, which is contrary to the law, and which is one form of what can be called fornication. There are other forms, such as race mixing and things like that. So this fornicator had, had sexual relations with his father's wife, which is an abomination in the eyes of the laws of God, and Paul demanded that those Corinthians put him out of their assembly put him out of the church to hand him over to Satan, which would be the pagan world outside of the churches of God, so that his flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit would be saved, his spirit would be saved in the day of Christ, because he was an Adamic male. So he had that eternal spirit, which we'll also get into later on in this presentation. So that's what Paul would say about sodomites as well, because he goes on, and we're going to cite that today in, in reference to the, the John's discourse on sin. Sodomites are not going to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, well we can dispute what that means, but basically, sodomites, we're told to put the evil away from us. We're not supposed to love the sinner, not until they repent of their sin, which we're going to discuss today. So th this is um, that we have to discuss sin in, in connection with this first epistle of John in order to help illustrate the fact that John's epistle is with all, without doubt contains a racial message for the Christians to whom he is writing. So that may itself be a digression, but there are sinners and there are authors of sin. And these people that introduce these heresies into the church, we're, we're warned by in different ways by Jude, by Peter, by Paul, that these people are not of us. They do not belong in the body of Christ. They have purposely infiltrated the body of Christ in order to corrupt it, subvert it, and ultimately to destroy it. No Jew should ever have been accepted into Christianity if we'd only obey the warnings of the apostles and the words of Christ. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. No, I think that sums it up nicely. Before we proceed, perhaps it is fitting to discuss something which Paul of Tarsus had said to the elders of the Christians of Ephesus. Ephesus being what I believe is the center of, of John's writing. Paul had feared that he would not again see those elders as he departed upon his last faithful journey to Jerusalem, where he was arrested. 
So in Acts chapter 20, we read, And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record, to record, this day, that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. In other words, if we understand the word of God and we don't tell our brothers, then we share in the guilt of their sins. So we have to tell. And there's laws in Leviticus, especially. Leviticus chapter 5 and Leviticus chapter... 19, I believe it is, which compel us to tell our brethren of their sin. So if we don't, we're partially guilty for their sin and just as guilty as the sinner. So that's why Paul says that I am pure from the blood of all men because he did warn them. He did warn every man that would listen to him. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost, this is the King James Version, I would prefer to say Holy Spirit, has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So another digression, speaking in reference to these modern churches, every modern church that accepts sodomites that accepts these homosexuals. And every person, every man, because a woman really has no place to correct men, even though women are often used by Yahweh to correct men, when that happens, it's actually a disgrace to the man. If a woman has to correct you as a man, you should be disgraced because you should have known better. So, every man in the Christian assembly that accepts a sodomite, because I can't hold the women accountable, according to scripture, every man that accepts a sodomite is just as responsible for the sin of sodomy as the sodomite is. And that's according to the law, and it's also according to what Paul is saying here. So we are required to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. And that means to tell them the truth of the word of God. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves, now this is an important distinction, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, Paul's ministry in Ephesus lasted three years, I believe from approximately 54 to 57 AD, perhaps, but in there somewhere, I may not remember exactly, but it's in my Acts commentary and probably also in my epistle to the Ephesians. But he spent three years in Ephesus, longer than he had spent in any other place. He spent a year and a half, maybe a little longer, in Corinth at an earlier time. 
Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn, I ceased not, meaning that I didn't stop, to warn everyone night and day with tears, exhorting these people to keep the laws of God and to remain steadfast in those laws in Christ, which is what Christ commands us to do, to keep his commandments. Those commandments are much more than the Ten Commandments, and and there's plenty of evidence of that throughout the Gospel. So, that being said, we see that Paul made, we should see that Paul made an important distinction between grievous wolves entering in among you. So they're not a part of you and of your own selves, where men shall arise of your own selves. So even those men, when they arise and create heresies, they're distinct from these grievous wolves, right? Here in 1 John chapter 2, the apostles spoke of men who were born as antichrists, who were not true Israelites, and who seduce the assemblies of Christ. Now, ostensibly, this epistle was written some 30 years after Paul as John was in Ephesus in the closing years of his own life. So he was also writing to at least some of the same people to whom Paul had spoken those words. So in Paul's earlier description, we see that Christians can be led astray, can think that perhaps they themselves can begin some new heresy and lead people off into error. But the wolves of whom he had spoken, they cannot be sheep, in spite of the fact that those wolves must have been professing Christ in order to gain entrance to Christian assemblies in the first place. And it is evident that Paul was also making a reference to those same infiltrators which were described by the other apostles. The point is that if there are wolves who are not sheep, and if even the false teachers among the sheep are still sheep and not wolves, as they are distinguished from wolves, then Paul's message is racial in nature, that there is a race of wolves present among the body of Christ, which the other apostles had also described as a race in different ways. So with that, we shall turn to 1 John chapter 3 and discuss a great portion of this chapter from that perspective. Bill, Ephesus, that means uh, desirable, doesn't it, as well? So so it's kind of uh, the whole revelation thing, right? Yes, I, I absolutely believe, and I've pointed this out in my revelation commentary from 10 years ago, which I hope to... Um, revisit soon, that the understanding, to in order to understand the message to the seven churches and to understand why those particular churches were singled out for the particular message, all we have to do is understand the meanings of the names of the cities where those churches were located. For instance, Smyrna is related to a Greek word, a word other than Christos, right? Christos means anointed, but Smyrna 
also refers to the oil with which one is anointed. So it refers to the same, that anointing, right? The anointing we have received, the anointing you have received, as John says. That word Smyrna is related to anointed, and the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. So the church whose name could mean ointment or oil of anointing, and the church whose name means brotherly love, those churches are not criticized. Not at all. But the church, the the other five churches, there are criticisms of those churches. And their names are also related to aspects of the criticism or the reason why they are being criticized even if it's nothing that the people in those churches had done themselves. So I've explained that in Christreich, in, in, in my Revelation commentary, and, and I really can't get into it all here. But yes, Ephesus is one of those churches, and that's also related to the, the meaning of the name of the city, what, which... It, it's, it could mean permitted, right? Or, or it could mean desirable. It, it depends on how the word is interpreted. But, but it adds up that um, some, you know, false, uh, false teachers came in and spoke a different Christianity, which was a little bit more desirable, right? Like prosperity gospel or, or you know, something like that that where you can be a christian but also rich and wealthy and and they listen to it and, and john's criticizing them here well yes absolutely i would agree with that and and that they're criticized in the in the revelation and i believe i repeat that later in this presentation so long as we could finish it today <laughs> it's 35 minutes i think close to um 34 minutes at least, and, and here we are at the beginning of my notes still. So I'm not complaining, but yeah, that's true. And and we will see, I'll talk more about the criticism of Ephesus later on. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And, and first let me state that John had professed in his gospel that Christ had come for the children of God or the sons of God who are scattered abroad. They were already children of God, children of God. He's not talking about people who are becoming children of God simply because they profess to believe Christ. But here in this verse, the context has not changed simply because the chapter number is different. There were no chapter numbers or verse numbers when John wrote this epistle. They were added by men 
in, in the Middle Ages, I think beginning from the 13th century in some bishop in England. And, and then that was picked up, that system was picked up by subsequent editors of manuscripts and translators of scripture. Here John is still writing within the context of his statement in verse 26 of the last chapter, where he had said, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. So evidently, them that seduce you are not children of God, as here he is writing in context, contrasting Christians to those others. So, he says, continuing with the chapter in verse 3, and every man has hope, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Every man that has this hope. If the whole world is supposed to receive the gospel of Christ, why would John make a statement and every man that has this hope in contrast to them that seduce you? And it should become evident that not all men have this hope, just as Paul had written, and I believe we discussed this at length, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I think in verse 4, that the faith is not for all. And, and Paul said that in the context of a prayer asking God to save us from those wicked and unjust men. So John's teaching the same thing that Paul had taught in different terms in different ways. If the church has only taught this, perhaps Christians would have never accepted the Jews, and today we would be living in the kingdom of God. So here we see an exhortation to the people to purify themselves from sin. What John encourages here, which culminates in verse 9, Peter also encourages among the assemblies of Anatolia in 1 Peter chapter 1, where, where we read, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit into the unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, in the King James Version. But similarly, Paul commended the Christians of Corinth for having departed from sin. Where in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he exhorts that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and other sinners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, speaking of those very things, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So we see that John is describing the same things that Paul had described. Every man has an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. When he hears, 
he should keep the commandments of Christ. If he keeps the commandments, he will cease from all the sins of his former pagan life, which is what John is describing, where things such as fornication, idolatry, adultery, and and homosexuality, and all of these other sins, there, there was no burden of guilt in the pagan world. Pagans did not believe that they were going to be condemned to eternal hell or, or to any um, punishment that early Christians may have believed would occur to them or that the Roman Catholic Church later taught would happen to them if they continued to partake in those sins. Now, of course, we believe that the trials of Gehenna, which are often a word which is often translated as hell, represent the trials of this world, and that in the flesh we are indeed going to be to suffer torment if we continue in sin. There's no doubt. And we may even suffer torment simply for being Christians, depending on the will of God in our lives. So Christians should choose voluntarily, even though Christ has cleansed us of our sins, Christians have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ and should choose voluntarily to cease from those sins. So that's described as cleansing yourself from sin, which is basically to accept the cleansing of Christ, which means that we cease from sin to keep his commandments. If we don't keep the commandments, then we might give Christ lip service. We might profess to believe Jesus. If we don't keep the commandments, we don't believe him at all. And John is going to make that point later in this chapter. So, in verse 4, where John now defines sin. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Yet only the children of Israel ever had the law in order to understand what sin is. The other nations never had it. They couldn't understand what sin is. And Christ had cleansed only the children of Israel, as only Israel, having had the law, needed to be cleansed. So, the following passages are relevant to our assertions, and I'm going to cite them. But these are not the only passages which can be cited in order to prove that assertion. Psalm 147, from verse 19. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. So the author of the psalm is actually celebrating the fact that the other nations were not given a law, and praising God on that basis. Jeremiah chapter 33, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them 
as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Now, Romans chapter 5, in verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. Well, of course it was. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. In Romans chapter 5, verse 13, we see that any and all men may commit some sin, some sin being a transgression of one of the laws. As Christ even told his enemies that they had sinned and that they would remain in their sins. Why would they remain in their sins? Because they have no propitiation for sin. But the important distinction lies in the fact that since only Israel ever had the law, sin is only imputed to the children of Israel. So only they needed to be cleansed of their sins. And of course, in another aspect of the purpose of Christ, only they needed to be redeemed because out of all the world's people, only they were his in the first place. Therefore, we shall read one more passage from Paul. Galatians chapter 4, from verse 4. <clears throat> but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, that word should be translated the position of sons. but even with that, in Romans chapter 9, Paul uses that same term translated adoption and makes it very clear that the adoption is for those who are Israelites, whose are the fathers. So an Israelite is someone who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not merely someone who professed Jesus. That's not an Israelite. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, and he responds, get away from me. I never knew you. So Christ came to redeem them that were under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons, and only the children of Israel ever had the law. Only they were ever under the law. And the Galatians were descended from Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, which can be proven from ancient history and archaeology. So as we have shown here in the past, Corinthians, Romans, and Galatians were all descended from tribes which had departed from the main body of Israel in early times or they were descendants of those Israelites who had been taken into the Assyrian captivity. So because they had sinned, and Yahweh had promised to cleanse their sins, we next read in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And then in verse 6, Whosoever abides in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither has known him, because the other races can sin, but sin is not 
imputed to them. They're not being held accountable to their sins, but neither can they be saved or granted salvation because they redemption is not for them. I hope that is that distinction so Bill, is clear. Bill, is that also why he, uh, Christ called them double damned? Because they were damned anyway for being bastards, but now they're trying to put themselves under the law where they've got no propitiation of getting out of the sins. Well, well, right. They can't get out of it. He told them they would remain in their sins. He called them whited sepulchers who are beautiful on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. And, and I would cross-reference that to the epistle of Jude, who, who called them clouds without water, twice dead, trees whose fruit withers, plucked up by the roots. Plucked up by the roots, as John the Baptist said, the axe is already laid to the root of the tree, and every tree not bearing good fruit shall be cast into the fire. Get away from me, I never knew you. And the tree is known by its fruits. And as Christ had said, I believe it's in... I'm going to stick my neck out because I might be wrong. I believe it's in Matthew chapter 11... I'll probably look it up as I say this. Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. Nope, I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 15. I thought it was earlier. Matthew chapter 15, verse 13. So all of these scriptures, when they're properly cross-referenced, we see that all of the apostles were teaching the same thing. They were all on the same page with different words, different terms, different allegories, but they were describing the same entities and, and the fact that not all men had the same origin. If they don't have the same origin, they don't have the same destiny. All the goat nations go into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why do the goat nations have the same destiny as the devil and his angels? Because the devil planted the tares in the field at the beginning. The field is the world. Okay, origin and destiny is the story of the Bible. That's what it's all about. If the devil's going to the lake of fire, so is his creation, right? Absolutely, or, or everything that he corrupted, in other words, which are the goat nations. Okay, what does it really mean to abide in Christ, where John says that we must abideth in him? Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. In Genesis chapter 3, in the promise of eternal life to Adam, we read, And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. And then in John chapter 15, we read, I am the true vine, the words of Christ, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it might bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, no more can ye except 
ye abide in me. So, Christ is the true vine. And Christ is also evidently the tree of life, the branch as he, as he is identified in the prophets, and the root and the branch of Jesse as he is identified in Isaiah chapter 11, and the root of David or the root and the offspring of David as he identified himself in the Revelation. The cherubs of the garden, keeping the way to the tree of life. They are next seen atop the Ark of the Covenant, guarding the mercy seat and the law. So the way for a man to abide on the vine is to keep the law. Therefore, Paul commended the Corinthians for cleansing themselves of idolatry, of fornication, and of adultery, all of which can, can describe acts of race mixing which is departure from the vine. Both Jude and Peter described the false teachers introducing false teachings into the Christian assemblies as those spots in your feasts of charity, as fornicators, idolaters, and adulterers having eyes full of adultery, as the angels that sinned going after strange flesh, committing fornication, Jude 7. And the difference being that their nature is congenital. Their nature is innate. They do those things because they are from a bad tree. And it is they who lead Christians into sin. So now John makes that same comparison in verses 7 and 8 of the chapter. And he says, little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he, meaning God, is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. <coughs> so, here it seems it seems on the surface in this translation that all men have an equal choice of whether or not to do good or evil. But under the surface, that is not what he is saying at all. We have used the words that same comparison introducing that verse. But the truth of our assertion is not evident in the King James translation, nor in most others. That is because throughout this epistle, John makes a distinction, which all of the translations have missed, whether they did it innocently or purposely. Of course, I can't understand their motives. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, and the corresponding verb, which is to sin or to commit sin, is hamartano. Yet here, where the King James Version has, he that committeth sin, we may expect to see a form of the verb hamartano, but instead there is another verb of which the meaning the King James Version basically glossed over. They ignored the significance of this other verb. So first, by itself, 
the verb hamartano appears 10 times in this first epistle of John, where it is usually to sin and also to commit sin in 1 John 3, 9, the very next verse, which we haven't yet gotten to in this epistle. The verb appears alone here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where he wrote, The devil sinneth from the beginning. Yet here at the beginning of verse 8, where he says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. The word for sin is the noun, hamartia, and or hamartia, I should probably say. And the word translated as committeth, is a verb, poieo. Now, this verb, poieo, rather interestingly, is the root for our, the root and origin for our English word, poet. As a poietes is someone who makes something, a maker, and was also used, in general, of a writer or author of written works. According to Liddell and Scott, the verb poieo is primarily to make, produce, or create. And it was used of everything from houses and buildings to books and the works of craftsmen and artists. And then, secondarily, it is to bring to pass, to bring about, to cause, and for that reason, in some contexts, it is simply to do something. But that oversimplifies its, its full meaning in many other contexts. That translation is too much of a simplification, to do. He that does sin, or as the King James Version has, he who commits sin. Because here, John cannot be referring to mere sinners, to those who simply do some sin. As he had already said in the opening verse of chapter 2 of this epistle, that my little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Having an advocate with the Father, the children of Israel, even when sinning, cannot possibly be of the devil. How ridiculous. Now, John is using in this epistle that word born, as we shall see in verse 9, a word that means born of people. It can't really mean anything else when it's used of people, except born. So, how ridiculous is it, since all men sin and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul of Tarsus said in Romans, I believe it's in Romans chapter 3. And then Paul explained in Romans chapters 6 and 7 that even he himself found it nearly impossible and actually impossible to keep his physical carnal body from committing sin. So, how ridiculous is it to be born of God one second 
and to be born of the devil the next second because you did something stupid. Even if you repent of it, if you did it, then John would be saying, if you interpret his statement that way, that you're born of the devil. That's absolutely ridiculous because if people born of God sin, they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You can't be born of God one second and then you do something stupid. Like look at a married woman and think to yourself, oh, she's pretty. And, and maybe that's an untoward thought that might be construed as covetousness, as coveting a married woman. You can't do, and that's basically some innocent sin to do something like that. Well, you can't possibly keep your carnal body from some sin, but as Paul also explained in Romans chapter 6 and 7, being Christians, having the Spirit of God, we can control our body so that we do not act on that sin or on that sinful thought. So we seek to control our bodies because we're Christians. But no man or woman can possibly keep herself from a sinful thought. That's why James describes the progressions of sin in his epistle, that sin is conceived, but it's really not sin. You can't really be held accountable for it until it's acted out. That's when it becomes punishable. James chapter 1. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Even though the scripture tells us, or Christ tells us, if you've even looked on a, a woman, and he's speaking about married women, because the word is gune. It's not parthenos, which is virgin. It would be natural for an unmarried man especially to look on a parthenos or virgin and desire her. So the proper response to that would be to seek to become married to her, right? Not just to have sex with her and leave her on the side of the road. That's sin. That's fornication because it's sex without the intention to be married, according to the law. If you take a virgin, according to the law, you should stay with her and be married to her. So <clears throat> he wasn't speaking of a parthenos. He was speaking of a gune, which is a married woman in Greek. It's an older woman. It's not a maiden or a virgin. So if you simply think that a, a married woman is desirable, even Christ said, that you've already committed fornication. But how could a man even know whether a woman is married if he sees her in the market alone or in the streets alone? So we really can't possibly keep ourselves from sin. It's not possible for a man. At some point in his life, he's going to commit that sin. But when the sin is finished, it brings forth death, according to James. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. When the lust is conceived, and when it is finished, it brings forth death. So all men must recognize that they are sinners, 
we could read the whole law, and it's impossible for any man or woman not to be a sinner in one way or another at diverse times in their life, because we all make mistakes. So, being Christians, we overcome that by controlling our carnal desires, and that's what Paul's describing in those chapters of his epistle to the Romans. And that's what John is saying here. We don't sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, the children of the devil, they have no advocate with the Father. These men who rejected Christ, Christ told them, you will die in your sins. They have no propitiation for their sins because he only came to redeem them that were under the law, the Israelites and their descendants who were given the law at one time. They are born of God. As the wisdom of Solomon says, I believe it's in wisdom chapter 19, he describes that that was what is born from above. And the apostle John recorded the words of Christ in Nicodemus chapter chapter in in John chapter three, the words of Christ in Nicodemus, that those who are born from above will see the kingdom of heaven. And if a man is not born from above, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you are just born of God because you didn't sin, you're a liar. Because as the apostle John says in this very epistle. Those who, who, who claim that they have not sinned call John a liar. So sin doesn't make you born of the devil or born of God. And you can't be born of the devil one day and born of God the next and born of the devil the day after and born of God the next. That's just absolutely ridiculous. That's like at the moment that the end of your life comes, it's like spinning a wheel at a carnival as to whether you're born of God or born of the devil on that particular day. That's absurd. But that's how these Judeo-Christians are taught. That's not what John's saying here. Here John cannot be referring to mere sinners, to those who simply do some sin. As he had already said, that we have a propitiation in Christ if we do sin. So having an advocate with the Father, the children of Israel, even when sinning, cannot possibly be of the devil. Rather, the men who infiltrate and corrupt the Christian assemblies, them that seduce you, and who introduce heresies into them, they are of the devil, as the other apostles describe them as having been condemned from of old. And no Israelite was ever condemned in that manner. All of Israel being offered mercy and forgiveness in Christ. So therefore, John must also be referring to something else, which is those same people, those from of old, had authored sin by creating and introducing those false teachings into the assemblies of God. Just as Peter and Jude had also attested, they were seducing Christians in John's own time. Now John describes how one may do righteously, which is also how one may abide in Christ. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does, commit, does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So we see that the man who is born of God is of God on account of the fact that his seed remains in him. That doesn't mean that he doesn't sin. It means that he's forgiven of his sins. Going back to 1 John 3.8, sin was authored by the devil. It was the devil who sinneth from the beginning. And Revelation chapter 12 connects the sins, those first sins of both Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6 with the devil and his angels, the Nephilim or the fallen ones. However, Adam was the son of God as we are informed in Luke chapter 3. And if he clings to the tree of life, it is by not committing fornication and race mixing. So the family of Noah was preserved in the flood because Noah was perfect in his generations, which is his descent. Then we read in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2, that through envy of the devil, death came into the world. So we see once again that the devil was the original author of sin. And both Jude and Peter related the infiltrators who introduced false doctrines into the assemblies of Christ to those same angels that sinned, men who were condemned from of old. So where John used that verb, poieo, with the noun for sin, Hamardia. He wasn't simply saying he that committed sin, because he's already told these Christians that if they do commit sin, they have a propitiation in Christ, so they can't simply sin and be of the devil, because they have a propitiation in Christ. He's speaking about those who author sin, he that authors sin, those interlopers, those intruders into the assemblies of God who introduce false doctrines. The false brethren brought it unawares. The false prophets among the people. The false teachers that will be among you. All these terms were used of these same entities in Peter, in Jude, in Paul, to describe these people who are of the devil. The Antichrist, who have already been born. And you see that uh, all non-whites naturally, um, as a, a living, I guess you could say it, they're always attracted to these type of professions, right? Not not just Jews, but but all of them, right? The 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 Arabs, the niggers, the the chinks. That they, they always have some kind of a again career, if you could call it, that leeches off of white civilizations by creating, you know, drugs, prostitution, uh, con artists, anything that sucks the wealth out of white civilizations, no matter what race, that that's just how they naturally are, right? Well, well, absolutely. And even if after several generations or, or even many generations of being in among white nations, even if they appear 
to have legitimate businesses and legitimate vocations. They got there through crime and treachery. And, and I could talk about what I perceive as the history of, of the um, Jewish slash Sicilian gangsters of New York. And, and today they all have, um, they own car dealerships and, and other businesses or, or they're businessmen and corporations. Yet they all got there by operating as a crime ring and peddling drugs and gambling and things like that in New York, and they laundered that money and converted it into the legitimate businesses and industries that they control today. Well, Chinatown is no different. Chinatown, for a 100 years in New York City, was virtually, or maybe 75 years or however old it is, was virtually impenetrable by the white society outside of Chinatown. And they trafficked in drugs, they trafficked in people, that they, um, wow, I don't want to speak about all the evil things that they probably fed unsuspecting white people in their restaurants, just like the, the um, Arabs in London, the Muslims who had assaulted a particular little girl, little white girl, and and kidnapped her and raped her for days. They boasted later on that they fed her to the people of London in their sandwich shop. I, I forget the word that you use to describe the types of sandwiches that they, they were selling, but they boasted of that, that they fed her to the people in the sandwich shop. They do all sorts of disgusting things and, and commit all sorts of disgusting crimes in order to build up wealth inside of a white society until they could turn that wealth into legitimate businesses and enterprises. And, and all of those legitimate businesses and enterprises were, were built on crime. And it's the same pattern over and over again. And I've seen the Chinese do it, and I've seen the, the Sicilians do it, and, and I've seen the Jews do it. All these um, disgusting rabbis in these very wealthy communities in New Jersey who have actually been arrested for trafficking in, in, body part, in human body parts. As Paul of Tarsus said, the things that they do in secret are too disgusting to even speak of. In, I'm paraphrasing. But that's what he said. So it, it's we can't imagine that they're different today. Because of the enmity resulting from the temptation, which is described in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the tares planted by the devil shall forever be in opposition to the wheat planted by God. And therefore, John says in verse 10 of this chapter, in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loves not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And now in verse 12, John himself brings the root of the issue back to Genesis chapter 3, back to Cain. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. <laughs> 
And wherefore, or why, did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, it cannot be established that Cain was a student of the devil or a believer in the devil. When Cain made his sacrifice, a sacrifice of the first fruits of his own labor, which he had expected would have pleased God, he himself expected his sacrifice to have pleased God, it was rejected. It could not have been rejected for any reason of anything Cain may have done. As Cain is depicted as trying to please God at a time when there was no law and when sin was not imputed as Paul of Tarsus had told us. Yet Cain was told. So there's nothing wrong up to that point that Cain could possibly have done. And there's no mention of Cain ever having done wrong up to that point where his sacrifice was rejected. Now, some people claim that Cain didn't offer a blood sacrifice as blood is required to atone for sin. And that's wrong. That's not true. It's not true because, as Paul of Tarsus had said in Romans chapter 5, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So why would Cain and Abel have to make a blood offering to atone for sin if sin is not imputed because there is no law? There's no mention of any blood offerings for sin until the law is given at Mount Sinai. No mention at all. The things sacrificed to God are usually the, the first fruits of men's labors or perhaps the booty from war a portion of the war booty and, and things like that, or when Isaac was commanded to sacrifice, when Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son Isaac, but Abraham was not commanded to sacrifice Isaac on account of sin. It was for a different purpose. So Cain and Abel did not were not required or expected to make sacrifices for sin. So that's a false argument. I've heard that posited as an excuse for Cain by British Israel and early Christian identity adherents, and it's simply not true. If sin's not imputed, there's no sin offering necessary or bloodshed necessary for sin. Cain was merely offering the first fruits of his labors as he was a husbandman, just like Abel was offering the first fruits of his labors as he was a shepherd. Yet Cain was told, as Yahweh was challenging him to do good, in Genesis chapter 4, that if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Yet Cain, not having done any apparent or attributed evil, his sacrifice was rejected. And the reason is revealed where the verse continues, where the statement continues, and Yahweh says, And if thou doest not well, 
sin lieth at the door. Therefore, Cain was rejected because sin lieth at the door, meaning that his birth and conception were already sin for reason that he could not do well. Cain was a bastard, as the Hebrew idioms of Genesis chapter 3 also demonstrate in spite of the text of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, which is demonstrably corrupt, and it was corrupted in ancient times, where John wrote, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, the preposition ek, translated as of, is defined by Liddell and Scott as a primary preposition denoting origin. The preposition ek very often appears in the genealogies in the Greek versions of Scripture, denoting origin. So the wicked one was indeed the origin of Cain, who slew Abel, and therefore Seth was a replacement for Abel and not for Cain. And that is why. So where John wrote, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, we see the words of Christ, who referred to Cain, where he said to his adversaries, you are the sons of your father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. But in that passage, Christ revealed why Cain was a murderer. It's because he was a devil. He wasn't a devil because he was a murderer. He was a murderer because he was a devil. He was rejected because sin lieth at the door. If he was accepted, his sacrifice would have been accepted. If he was rejected, it is because sin lieth at the door. So that's why his sacrifice was rejected. Do you think that's another Hebrew idiom, sin lieth at the door? At the, sorry, at the conception? Absolutely. And even in modern English, we, all, we often use the door as an idiom for the beginning of something, for the start of something, or for, or, or in, in the sense of looking for a door as an opportunity. And it would be like um, saying to Cain, you know, if you sin, then the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and, and people would know what, what God means. Huh? Absolutely, that he couldn't have been from Adam. <laughs> he must have been from some other tree. So, John writes in verse 13 of this chapter, <clears throat> Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from life, from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So a murderer is someone who hates his own brother and for that reason would kill him, would murder him. Even as John wrote, those who were still calling themselves Jews, of whom John had said that they went out from us, but they were not of us, they were indeed persecuting Judean Christians. And all Christians, and instigating the Romans to also persecute them. 
Paul spoke to the Thessalonians and, and he spoke of those who killed the Lord Jesus. I want to, um, well, I can't find it. Those who killed the Lord Jesus and those who killed the prophets and were contrary to all men. And I know that in the King James Version it says their own prophets, but that's an interpolation that is not in any of the ancient Greek manuscripts. It's those who killed the prophets and who are contrary to all men. He's describing these same people, these Jews who were contrary to all men, and for that reason they were persecuting, and they even wanted to kill Paul when he said that he was going to bring the gospel of Christ to far-off nations. Why should they even have cared if he went to Rome and preached Christianity, or if he went to Greece or, or anywhere and preached Christianity? Why should those Judeans have even cared? But they are contrary to all men, and they actually hate Christ and the prophets. So they claim to be Judeans, yet they're hating what they would claim to be their own brethren, their own people. But John said they went out from us, but they were not of us. So even as John wrote, they were persecuting Christians. John himself was a victim of that persecution. While he was not slain, since he was exiled on the island of Patmos during the rule of Domitian, after which he was able to return to Ephesus. Now, we don't have that in Scripture, but we do have that, and I'm going to discuss it shortly in several weeks, in all of the accounts of the early church fathers, the early Christian writers, who are very consistent on that issue. And if we understand that we have these documents preserved to us, it becomes clear, and that John is writing to people, his epistles he is writing after the gospel was written, after the revelation was given to him and recorded, because his epistle reflects understanding that was based on that, then we could see that the early church fathers are correct when they explain that John was able to depart from the Isle of Patmos where he was in exile and where he was, according to the Revelation, when he received those visions, and go back to Ephesus where he wrote these epistles. So, so that's all, even though it's not explicit in Scripture, it is evident in Scripture that where it is, where it is explicit in the writings of the early Christians, that they are correct in that regard, that John did indeed. And, and there are later Christian writers, Clement of Rome, I believe, who attested to having been disciples of John. So if John had disciples, he must have survived these things, right? And, and continued to write at that late period of history. That's another digression, I'm sorry. So, John was able to return to Ephesus after he was a victim of this persecution of the Jews, and, and Jews have had that same hatred for Christians ever since the first century. 
and Jews are responsible for most, if not all, of the wars among Christians, as they have instigated those wars throughout history through bribery, through usury, and other surreptitious means by which they influenced the, the kings and princes of Europe over the course of many centuries. But since Jews are not Israel, it may be said that they are not true brethren. Even Paul described perils among false brethren in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 11. And he spoke of false brethren brought in unawares, meaning that they were practically undetectable, speaking in reference to Judaizers in Galatians chapter 2. The Jews, being of Esau, are not true children of Abraham, as Christ had explained to them in John chapter 8, and as Paul also described the Judeans who rejected Christ in Romans chapter 9, those for whom he did not pray, who were also described as vessels of destruction, where he compared Jacob and Esau. So, as Christ had also said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9, if any man will come after me and let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now John urges his readers likewise in verse 13 of this chapter. Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That doesn't mean we necessarily have to die for them, but we dedicate our lives to our own people. So in the verses which follow, in 17 through 23 of 1 John chapter 3, John speaks of Christian charity, which is charity for one's own brethren. Much as James had also taught, where he said that faith without works is dead in his epistle. And then in the closing chapter of the verse, in verse 24, we read once more, and he that keeps his commandments dwells in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. Yet the infiltrators who were condemned from of old did not have that spirit within them. As Jude said in verse 19 of his epistle, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. Now that verse from our own translation actually says, these are those making divisions, animals, not having the spirit. And the difference isn't that the King James Version made a mistake. The difference is in the meaning of the word. And I will get to that shortly. These are those making divisions, animals, not having the spirit. For that same reason, both Jude and Peter had called them clouds without water, twice dead, and or, or cursed children, wells without water. Likewise, Peter had said in chapter 2 of his second epistle that they are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So we read in Jude verse 19 that these are animals not having the spirit. 
they couldn't get the spirit because the spirit's given as a matter of God's creation. If you're a child of Adam, you have that spirit breathed in you as Adam also had it. And that makes you born of God, born from above. Peter warned about those same false teachers, that false teachers among you who shall privily bring in damnable heresies. That word heresies is also the source of the English word heresy, the Greek word hieresis, which describes a taking or a choosing. And, and therefore, in this sense, it is also a sect. So that's also the word in Jude 19, where it says, these be those who separate themselves. In other words, these be they who create sects or make their own sects. And that's the sense of Jude 19, where the King James said, they separate themselves. But we translate it as those making divisions, because that's more clear in modern English. And even um, Paul and the apostles at this time were having great difficulty discerning, um, you know, the false brethren, right? They had to wait until their actions revealed themselves. It, it wasn't always just obvious by looking at them. Absolutely. They had um, not been able to understand the true, the difference between the true brethren and that these intruders into the body of Christ who were false brethren, until, as Christ said, by their fruits you know them. As soon as they started to teach doctrines which departed from what the apostles were teaching, which they learned from Christ, then they realized these men aren't listening to us. They're teaching their own ideas and, and their own heresies, and they're going to cause divisions and subvert the church, subvert the assemblies of Christ. But whether or not they were false brethren, as Christ had warned, could not be told until we see their fruits. And they even threatened Paul, the Judaizers in perils among false brethren, among people who were actually tares and not wheat, among people who were, didn't have the spirit, who were twice dead. They were not born of God. Not as a matter of their sin, because all men sin, but as a matter of their origin. And they are the authors of sin because they were born of the devil who sinned from the beginning. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul had explained that Christ had come to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He's not speaking to anyone who wasn't under the law. So he says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Then he said a couple of years later in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, 
if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Men with the Spirit of God are not sons because they have the Spirit. Rather, according to the words of the apostles, as we have just read, such men have the Spirit of God because they are sons. As Paul said here, and as John said earlier, because his seed is in him, meaning that he is a true child of Adam, the son of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, because he is born of God. If you are a pure child of Adam, if you are kind after kind, then you cannot commit sin because you're going to be forgiven of all your sins. Because the devil is the author of sin. That is what John is explaining throughout this epistle. As Paul had explained in Romans 5, in Christ, all men, in Adam, all the descendants of Adam, all men die. In Christ, all men shall be made alive. I'm sorry. He does describe that in Romans chapter 5, but not in those words. Those words are from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he described it again. So while this race of infiltrators does not have the spirit of God, they do have a corrupt spirit, as all spirits are not the same. And as John now explains in the opening verses of chapter 4, we're only going to read the first three verses. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it, is, it is in the world. As he had said, many Antichrists have already been born into the world. Of course, John was speaking of the men of the world of his own time, and evidently could not have foreseen that all sorts of beasts would be brought into the Christian society and presume to be converted to Christ. They are also spots in our Feast of Charity, raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame, having eyes full of adultery. Universalism, which really began as a heresy in the 2nd century A.D., when Judaizers of Palestine and Alexandria convinced men that Christianity was a replacement theology rather than the covenant theology which was taught by the apostles. Universalism is certainly one of the damnable heresies introduced by false brethren. However, to profess that the Christ has come in the flesh... That doesn't, that doesn't merely 
entail the words or the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ. There's a lot more to it than that. Since Christ bears the same meaning of the Hebrew word Messiah, promised in the words of Daniel, in the prophet in Daniel chapter 9, while at the same time he is also the Savior of Israel, promised throughout Scripture, and especially in the words of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters, perhaps chapters 43 through 54, and the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, as well as the Son who would come to rule all nations, prophesied in the Psalms of David, namely in the second Psalm, we read in John chapter 1 of the disciple Andrew that he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found a Messiah, which translated means Christ. Of course, there are many other such prophecies, such as that of the root of Jesse, the branch as a servant of Yahweh, and the birth of the child who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, a prophecy which is found in Isaiah chapter 9 in both the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls copies of Isaiah. In the, the Septuagint as we have it today, I believe it's corrupt. Then with all of these, an agreement with the purpose and fulfillment of the promises to which the prophecies of a Messiah, Son, and Savior are all attached, that must also be a part of the profession that Christ has come in the flesh. And this is where the unworthy fall short, as they reject the notion which Christ himself had professed where he said, I have come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, or where the new covenant, mercy, salvation, redemption, and forgiveness of sins, along with reconciliation to God, were all explicitly promised to Israel and Judah alone and to nobody else. So if other races today profess Christ, they do not really profess Christ because they do not profess that the Messiah, Son, and Savior of the Old Testament promise to Israel has come in the flesh. Rather, they profess some strange Jesus whom the Old Testament did not promise, as the modern churches tell nothing but lies about the purpose of Christ. The apostles, throughout their writings, throughout the Gospels, throughout their epistles, had constantly referred back to the promises of the fathers and all the promises related to Christ in respect to the children of Israel, which were made in the Old Testament. So to profess that Christ has come in the flesh without professing that he is fulfilling and keeping those particular promises to those particular people is absolutely disingenuous. It's a false religion. It's not Christianity.
Yeah, and uh, I believe you said last week how um, the Romans or uh, Iberians, uh, Germanic tribes, that they're not really anti-Christ because they didn't understand who Christ was, right? Absolutely. But, but the Jews, they did, and they purposely tried to get rid of it. Absolutely. So, so they are anti-Christ. They're trying to corrupt and destroy the message with an understanding of what it is. Absolutely. In order to understand, and, and this is throughout Paul's epistles, He's teaching the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that their ancestors were Israelites who had been baptized in the cloud and in the sea with Moses. And then he starts teaching them the law by forbidding them to commit fornication just as they had done. And in one day, 23,000 had fallen, speaking of the time when the children of Israel, who were their same ancestors, had committed fornication with the daughters of Moab. So Paul's teaching this. And to accept Christ and to profess Christ is vanity unless you're professing all of the promises and the fulfillment of those promises in Christ, which were made in the prophets that prophesied Christ. You can't profess Christ legitimately without expressing and accepting and acknowledging that he is the fulfillment of those particular promises to those particular people. And if you're doing that, like all of today's modern churches are doing, singing a different tune, teaching a different gospel, other than the gospel that Paul had taught, as he says in Galatians, then you're just a curse. To profess Christ is to profess the Christ of the prophets who came to do the things and to fulfill the promises which were made in the books of the prophets. Teaching any other Jesus is not professing Christ. Yeah, all the uh, bastards, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? If they believe that Christ only came for Israel and the sheep and the goat, well, they're damned. And if they believe a false Christ, well, they're not going to be saved anyways, right? Right, absolutely. So where John writes, whosoever believeth or, or whosoever professeth, that's what he's referring to. The real Christ, the Christ of the prophets. Not the Jesus of the church, who loves everybody. Why would he kill children if he loves everybody? Revelation chapter 2. He kills children. He's promised to kill children. That's Jesus speaking. If you're a Christian, you have to believe that those are the words of Jesus, who says that he's going to kill children. So he says he's going to kill children because of the fornication of their parents. Why would he do that? We'd better go and see what that word fornication means in order to understand that. And, and once we understand it, fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh or race mixing. Now we can understand why he's going to kill children. Because they're the pro they're the, they are the produce or the fruits of that race mixing. Well, who taught the children of Israel to race mix? The false prophets who crept into the assemblies of God unawares. The Jews that 
creep into Christian assemblies and say, oh, God loves everybody. The Masonic Declaration of the Brotherhood of Man upon the emancipation of the Jews in, in 18th century France. I could ramble on about this forever. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can keep going. <laughs> we should probably move on to the next section of, of our presentation. Well, John, well, 1 John chapter 4 is a lengthy dissertation of the love which these Israelite Christians should have for their own brethren, no one else being included. <clears throat> we shall skip ahead to chapter 5, where he once again makes a reference to believing in Christ. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loves him that beget loveth him, meaning God, loveth him also that is begotten of him, meaning not only Christ, but all of the children of God. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Keeping the commandments, Christians should not be doing the things which the apostles had advised them not to do. As Paul of Tarsus, for example, had warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that word homosexuals. It doesn't appear in the King James Version. I had purposely taken that passage from the New American Standard Bible. The King James Version has abusers of themselves with mankind. But that whole phrase comes from, from one word, which is a compound word, which is the Greek word, a plural form of the Greek word arsenokoites. Arseno is a prefix from a word that means male in Greek. And koites is the act of coitus or sexual intercourse. Arsenokoites, as it was used in the classical writers, in the Hellenistic Greek writers, in the secular writers of the very time of, of the New Testament and the apostles. Arsenokoites only means one thing. It only has one meaning. Sodomy, which is today called homosexuality. It has no other meaning. So race mixers and sodomites, as well as adulterers and idolaters will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. However, you can enter into the kingdom of heaven if 
as Paul had also explained, you cleanse yourself of that. In verse 11 of that same chapter, which we've already cited here, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You were washed if you turn to Christ and stop those wicked practices then you can enter the kingdom of heaven. You can find repentance and acceptance so long as you're a child of God. So later in the chapter, and we're going to skip ahead, in reference to the correction of brethren who do not keep the commandments of God, we read in verse 16, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not under death. There is a sin under death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. From this aspect, we can once again say that it is not merely those who sin who are born of the devil. It is those who author sin who are born of the devil. Those who have crept into and corrupted all of the assemblies of Christ are demonstrably the authors of sin. It goes beyond merely sinning because you can't be born of the devil one day and born of God the next. And then if you slip up, you're born of the devil again a week later. That's ridiculous. The sin unto death, which is also blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the sin that won't be forgiven, as Christ had explained, is indeed the sin of Jeremiah chapter 2, which can never be washed off, which is race-mixing fornication. In Revelation chapter 2, as we've already said, Christ himself professed in his messages to the seven churches that he will punish such fornicators, but that at the same time, he will kill their children with death. So we see that the sin unto death is the sin of producing bastards in whom there is no life because the Spirit of God cannot dwell in a broken cistern. Clouds without water. And Jeremiah used that term, broken cistern, in that same chapter to describe that sin that can't be washed off. So in the next verse, which is the last one in this epistle, which we will discuss here, 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keeps himself, and that wicked one touches him not. In other words, no matter what the devil does to you in this life, you have a, your true life with God because you were born of God. He is not going to hold you accountable for all those sins which the devil had brought into the world. And that entire race of devils, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
Just as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 5, and again, more concisely, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the entire Adamic race shall be reconciled to God in Christ, and all of Israel shall indeed be saved, as we read in Romans chapter 11 and in Isaiah chapter 45, for example. But while in other scriptures it is explained in a similar fashion, here in chapter 3 of this epistle, John has informed us that whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. His seed is in him. He is not a bastard because his seed is in him. As Paul made a distinction in Hebrews chapter 12 between sons and bastards. While all of Israel are forgiven their sins, the balance of the Adamic race, sin is not imputed for the balance of the Adamic race, as Paul had also said. So we read also in the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity, destroying the works of the devil, as John said here, God will not fail. Each Adamic man, was created to be immortal, and will be, and was made to be an image of his own eternity, and is, through that spirit. But if one is a bastard, a product of fornication, then one has no eternal life. So we read in chapter 4 of the Wisdom of Solomon, But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take deep rooting from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation, meaning any lasting or sure foundation. For though they flourish in branches, or as branches, right? For though they flourish in branches for a time, yet standing not last, they shall be shaken with the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. And this also evokes the words of Jude, who had called them clouds without water, carried about of the winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Wisdom of Solomon, epistle of Jude, saying the same thing about the same people, about bastards who creep in unawares and introduce false teachings into the assembly of God, who were condemned from of old. And this is just what we said, how um, that they, you know, the wandering descendants of Cain, how they wander around to white societies looking to um, make a living by leeching off of white societies, that they look for a good tree to, you know, plant their branches in and settle for a while until... Uh, there's not not as much profit they like, and then they'll move on, right? Well, yeah, you know, Christ had made a similar analogy. The birds of heaven in in the nest. 
Yes, and, and I was just about to cite Luke chapter 13, where he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven, that it is like a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, as he said, out, said elsewhere, right? <clears throat> it is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden. Now, Adam and Eve were only two people, and they gave birth to a race that was mostly destroyed for the race mixing that they committed with the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. And a, a remnant of eight people survived it, which gave birth to all of the Genesis 10 nations, which make up the world of Scripture going all, all the way into the future until the time when the children of Israel were told they were going to inherit that world. And they did as Romans, as Parthians, Scythians, Phoenicians, all of those Dorian Greeks, Dan and Greeks, all of those people came from the ancient children of Israel. So the kingdom of heaven is indeed as a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. All of those beasts and corruptions of the fallen angels, the birds of the air nested in its branches. There are other very similar analogies to the kingdom of God in Scripture. And the same thing keeps repeating where um, white flight, you know, like America, for example, where all the Europeans fled and created a new country and, and look who followed them. Absolutely. And every time. I, I mean, when, when Christianity was established in Europe, and as I was referring earlier to Theodosius one, Theodosius two, to that period of time, and perhaps I could look up Theodosius one and get a more precise. I, I believe it was the fifth century. He preceded Justinian. I think he preceded Justinian. So I'll be sure in a moment. Justinian was five thirty A.D. when he came to rule. And he established the papacy. Yes, it wasn't the 5th century. It was the late 4th century. Theodosius I, um, 347 to 395. I knew he was after Constantine and before Justinian. And, and then Theodosius II was the 5th century. And in that period of time, Jews were basically, because of all of the laws that these men had, had made that established Christianity, not only in name, but in many aspects, I'm not going to say it was perfect, right? Because it wasn't, but in many aspects in practice, wherever the Romans had ruled in Europe at that time, that marginalized the Jews. It revoked a lot of their common rights to citizenship, which, as I stated, they didn't regain until the emancipations of the 18th century. So that marginalized the Jews and pushed them, for the most part, out of the empire. So the Jews went to Khazaria, these Edomite Jews, and, and they began to convert Khazars and intermarry with them. And then the Jews went to Arabia and 
it can be pretty much demonstrated that Jews were responsible for the creation of Islam, which assisted them in militantizing and militarizing the Arab bastards against Christianity and, and Christian lands, and they invaded Spain. They, they conquered North Africa, they conquered Palestine, they invaded Spain, and did everything they could for a thousand years to get their way into Europe so that they could make Europe an Islamic state under Jewish control and corrupt the race of, of Europeans, corrupt our white Christian race, and destroy it forever. And as late as... I believe the last siege of Vienna by the Turks, as Martin Luther was writing, he was aware of the wars in Eastern Europe that were being waged by the Poles and, and the Lithuanians against Islam. He was fully aware of that. And even after the time of Martin Luther, the last siege of Vienna what was in like the 1780s, I think. Or no, I'm sorry, the 1680s. So as late as the 1680s, which is only a couple of hundred years ago, the Muslims were trying to invade and destroy Europe under the Ottomans. So these other races are now that the immigration, after the Jews had been able to win their emancipation, which they did using Napoleon as the vehicle for that and, and, and the French Revolution. And Napoleon, wherever he conquered in Europe, the, he emancipated the Jews all the way through Germany and Poland, all, all the way to Russia, and gave them the rights of citizenship. Napoleon did that for us. He was the final... Um, cog in the wheel to force the emancipation of the Jews. And after Napoleon, a couple of holdout nations did it voluntarily. Once the Jews were emancipated, they started beating that drum, echoing the ideals of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and the universal brotherhood of man, which were taught by the Masons who, who, who had launched the French Revolution, who, who had been the primary perpetrators, and the Masons were only tools of the Jews, ever since then, in the name of democracy, we have that universal brotherhood of man and the floodgates of Muslims and Negroes who could not succeed in destroying Europe by war are now open, and they're destroying it by means of peace, which is also a matter of biblical prophecy. I don't know if you have anything to add. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, they, yeah, they just changed tactics, didn't they? If, if they can't force them in by war, then they'll do it by subversion. Right. And and they failed their last attempt. That I mean, the, the, the men of Venice, the merchants of Venice and, and the Venetians had fought wars with the Ottoman Turks at sea for, for 
an extended period of time where Muslims were actually constantly raiding the seacoasts of Christian nations and bringing off white Christians, men and women, and forcing them into slavery in Africa. That was going on for hundreds of years before it was finally stopped by the Venetians. And, and Europe was never united in, in their wars against the Muslims or in the Muslim wars on Europe. For instance, Francis I, the king of France, had actually allied himself because he was at odds with, with the, um, the German nobility and the Holy Roman Empire. He actually allied himself with the Ottomans and gave them use of seaports on the Mediterranean coast of France. So the, um, in, in my opinion, the Mediterranean coast of France ha has had clouds of darkness and spots <laughs> among its people, those spots and those natural brute beasts among its people ever since. The Jews of Spain and Portugal were always allied with the Ottoman Turks and, and found sympathy in the Ottoman Turks in their plight against Europeans in their struggle to infiltrate and subvert Europe. Like I said, I could keep going, but that, that's probably too many digressions by now. <laughs> First John was a general epistle, which apparently did not contain any explicit salutation indicating to whom it may have been written. But evidently, John returned to Ephesus after his exile on Patmos, and therefore he seems to have been writing to early Christians in that area, as well as to Christians in general. That's why these are called Catholic epistles in the sense of general epistles. So where he mentioned them that seduce you in chapter 2 of this epistle, when he recorded the revelation, one of the messages to the seven churches commended the Ephesians for having tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. But it also warned the Ephesians for having left their first love, which seems to be a reference to the teachings of Paul of Tarsus, who was there several decades earlier and who had founded those Christian assemblies in Ephesus. So perhaps John was recounting their own experiences where he spoke of them that seduce you, which I'm convinced that he was, that that circumstantial evidence found in the revelation, in the history of the ministry of Paul, and here in this epistle, leads me to believe that that narrative is true. But John's other two surviving epistles were personal. They were written to specific individuals. The third epistle was written to an elder man named Gaius. We won't discuss it any further here. The second epistle, which we shall discuss briefly here, was written to a woman and her children, an unnamed woman and her children. In that epistle, the apostle mentioned Antichrist once again in the plural where he had warned 
in Second John verse 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now here John used the verb, exercomahi, which actually means to come or go out from. To come out from something or to go out from something. But he used it with a preposition which is literally into. So perhaps it may have been translated more accurately as many deceivers have gone out into the world. But that does not change the sense of the statement. Rather, his intention becomes evident where he wrote in his first epistle, describing these men who had been born as antichrists, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. So that's what he means by using that explicit language. Many deceivers have gone out, meaning from Judea, into the world. So this warning nevertheless corroborates his earlier statements in his first epistle to some degree, that his teaching was indeed consistent. And then John professes that Christians must have nothing to do with them, not even to greet them. So therefore, and this is important, therefore, there is no opportunity for Christians to convert them. That's something we must understand. Neither Jude nor Peter nor Paul gave these Edomite Jews, gave these intruders into the assemblies, these spots in our feasts of charity. These false brethren crept in unawares. Any opportunity to truly be converted to Christ and become Christians. It's not in the words of Peter, it's not in the words of Jude, and it's not in the words of Paul anywhere that these men should have any opportunity to become true Christians, to be taught that their false doctrines are wrong, because they're interlopers, they're intruders into the assembly, they don't belong in the first place, or they would never have been described as sneaking in unawares as false brethren. So here we're going to see that in John, neither are Christians given any opportunity to convert those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And he says in 2 John chapter, I'm sorry, it's one chapter, in 2 John verse 9, whosoever transgresses, and abides not in the doctrine of Christ, has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that bids him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now, that phrase biddeth him Godspeed. 
actually comes from a word that only means to greet. That's all it means. Don't even greet a person who does not come to you in the name of Christ. Don't even bid him Godspeed. I'm going to get the, before we finish here, I would like to get the exact word. I, I don't quite remember its, its true form, but in the North American Standard Bible, it is translated, and, and the King James translation is not wrong. It's just early 17th century language to bid someone Godspeed is to greet someone. Why? Because you come to them in the name of God. Every time a Christian approaches somebody, he should be coming to that person in the name of God. If he doesn't think that person is a Christian, he shouldn't be approaching that person in the first place to bid him Godspeed. Because we can't bid idolaters Godspeed. So Godspeed in 1611 English was synonymous with greeting someone. But in the New American Standard Bible, in 2 John verse 11, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So, the Greek word is kahiro. And kahiro means, it, it can mean to rejoice at or to be delighted in. To take delight in. But it is also used of greeting someone to hail or to welcome a person, as it was used from the earliest Greek writers right up to the second century in the writings of Plutarch. So when you see a person who's a fellow Christian, the underlying meaning is that you're happy to see a fellow Christian, that you take delight in that person, you're bidding them Godspeed in 1611 English, you're greeting them in modern English. If somebody's not a Christian, you shouldn't take any delight in him, you shouldn't greet him. You can't bid him Godspeed. And if so, we followed that, the Jews would be powerless today, right? If we followed that, all the Jews and all of the people of the other races who do not belong in Christian nations would be absolutely powerless. Yes. Because Christians... It goes back to that... Um, what's that verse that if you obey him that... Uh, I think it's just after Noah stepped off the ark that the, the fear and dread will overcome them when they see you coming. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And that works. I know it works from personal experience. 25 years in jail and prison. If you know who you are, if you act like a child of God, if, if you have no respect for these other races, if you have no communion with them, no intercourse with them, yes, they will fear you. Even if they're bigger than you. And they, they have some natural mechanism in them that fears and respects that. And they'll have more respect for you as a white man than they would for the white man who vacillates and kisses their asses. 
That is true. That's been my personal experience throughout my life, or at least throughout the last 25 years since I've been studying this. If your seed is right, in you, so, um, are you're we born on of God. the corrupted priesthood next week? Yes, definitely. Malachi and the corrupted priesthood, which is going to lead back to all of these same issues and all of these <laughs> same statements. Because the Bible is a single book teaching a single consistent message in any period of time. Whether it's John in, in 94 AD or Christ in 29 AD or Malachi in 400 BC. God does not change. So next week we'll discuss the corrupted priesthood. Because Malachi was actually prophesying things that happened during the ministry of Christ and that are happening today. Thank you. All right, Bill. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. And if your sin is, if your seed is in you, thank your parents for clinging to the tree of life. <laughs> Praise Christ.